Thank you, choir. I'm on board. Anybody else want to go with them? I um, want to thank whoever is in charge of getting your guest pastors for the invitation to be with you today. It is always a treat, especially when you're a retired pastor. It is so wonderful to get to fill the pulpit for churches like you are in the transition period or pastors who are on vacation or whatever because there's nothing more joyful, and you know this, than to sit or stand with people and open up the word of the Lord together. So I really cherish this time with you, and I am grateful for this opportunity. I did notice that um, I, I do follow the offering and not precede it. So <laughs> the um, very wise decision on somebody's part. <laughs> Today, I want us to go to a text together that's very familiar to you if you've hung around church circles for very long. It's one of Jesus's parables. It's one that I bet every one of you has heard before. Therefore, I invite you to try and hear it today with fresh ears. It's a parable that I have to confess um, is one of the most troubling passages of scripture for me. Every time I have heard this text preached, every time I have read it in a women's Bible study or just on my own, it has been like a knife to my heart because I find it that convicting. Perhaps you have too. It's actually one of those texts that I wish weren't in the Bible. But what I have found is that when we come to those texts that are troubling or uh, disagreeable, those are the ones we really need to pay attention to. So we're going to wrestle together with this parable that's called in most of our Bibles, the rich man and Lazarus. So I invite you to follow along with me beginning in Luke 16 with the 19th verse. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham! Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
The word of the Lord. I live just outside Wimberley on a piece of property that was once a working ranch. It has now been divided into some fairly large subplots, and it's a place for city slickers like me to get a taste of what country living is all about. And out where I am, there are lots of fences and gates, and some of those are purely decorative, or so my neighbors tell me, but some of them are utilitarian. They keep their dogs and their horses in, and they keep the deer out. But one piece of property that I pass every single day as I enter and exit my subdivision is this beautiful large stone house set back under some trees with a big fence around it and gorgeous wrought iron gates. And on those gates are two signs, red and black, that read, Private Property. Well, duh. <laughs> I would guess that those signs are to keep out more than the deer. You know, it's kind of the same on real ranches and farms around these parts where we live, and it's the same even in our cities, in your city. Places of business are increasingly gated when business hours are open, and more and more new gated residential communities are going up, not just here in Austin, but even in sleepy little places like Wimberley and San Marcos, joining the ones that are already built. We Texans live with a lot of gates. Our text this morning is the story of two lives lived around a gate. Now, I don't want you to think of a largish house at the end of a very longish driveway that you access by punching in the correct code. In Jesus's day, all the houses abutted the street. And so the gate simply marked a division between the main room of the house, or in this case that we're reading about today, probably the courtyard of that person's house and the street itself. In our story, the man who owns the gate and lives behind it is rich. We don't know his name, and we aren't privy to his bank account, but for our purposes here today, let's just say he is filthy, stinking rich. He not only eats caviar for breakfast and filet mignon for his supper, he not only dresses like a king in royal purple when he goes out, but Jesus tells us he even wears designer underwear. That's what that phrase scholars tell me, translated fine linen, really refers to. <laughs> the other man lives on the other side of that gate, the street side, or at least he's there every day. Perhaps he's carried, the text says he's laid there, so perhaps he's carried there every day by family or friends. And the surprising thing is we do know his name. It's surprising because in this story, he's a man of no consequence and therefore not entitled to a name, but also this is the only one of Jesus's parables where proper names are used. That man's name is Lazarus. And Lazarus, incidentally, means God helps. 
And he is there, the text tells us, with his hand raised each time that rich man goes in and out of his gate, hoping, hoping against hope, it would seem, for a crust of bread or maybe just a a small coin to keep himself from starving. Now, Lazarus has no underwear, designer or otherwise. What he has is a body that is oozing with sores, which the street dogs, who themselves are starving, lick repeatedly for some nourishment for themselves, and in the process, they keep the man's sores raw and irritated all the time, which add to his misery. And even if he had the energy, he couldn't find a job or enter another one's house or even go to church for a little comfort on Sunday because his sores make him unclean and therefore unfit for any human contact. The only thing these two men have in common, it would seem, is the gate. The gate is the measure of their lives lived in such close proximity and yet light years apart. Each day that Lazarus comes there to that gate, each hour that he sits there alone in the blistering sun or the dusty wind or the freezing rain, he is probably fully aware that his life is ticking away second by second. And each day that the rich man goes in and out of his house, each day as he opens and closes that gate, his life too, though he may be blessed to be blissfully unaware of it, is also ticking away. Second by second, tick, tick, tick. For you see, the other thing that these two men have in common is death. Death, that great leveler, that disregarder of persons. They both die, the story says. And then comes the real surprise, or better, the shock of this story. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise because the storyteller we have come to know has a way of turning everything on its ear, of saying things like, the last shall be first. And you find your life by losing it. But it is a shock nevertheless because Jesus is speaking first into a culture that equates wealth with being favored by God and equates poverty and illness with being cursed by God. And he's speaking to a particular group of people. We learn in verse 14, just before this story, he's talking to the Pharisees, people who have bought into that understanding of God and humanity and the way they work together, hook, line, and sinker. This upstart rabbi, it seems to them, just keeps insisting on going too far. Jesus is speaking to the chief keepers of the law, if you will, who have nonetheless chosen to ignore or to reinterpret much of the written law, like Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 15 and Isaiah 58, which say that the poor and transient should be given a share of the Israelite harvest and that the sacrifice which are really pleasing to God's heart are sharing your bread with the hungry. Yeah. Or clothing the naked. I'm all in or inviting the filthy, dirty, ragged, homeless poor into your home. 
whoa. That one, for me at least, is a little shocking, even 2,000 plus years this side of the first time that story was told. Because for me too, this upstart rabbi keeps insisting on going just one step too far. Death and the next life come to us all. And the picture of the reversal of fortunes in this story is pretty sobering, don't you think? Because it says somehow that how it goes for us after death has a lot to do with how it plays out for us now at the gate. Now, before we go any further, let it be said that this is not a story about an evil man, an evil rich man, and a saintly poor man. The rich man in our story does not abuse Lazarus. He may well be the superintendent of the Sunday school down at the Presbyterian Church. He may be genuinely concerned about the disease rate among infants or the latest unemployment figures. He may contribute generously to local charities. He's not an evil man, or at least there's no clue in the text that he is. He is simply so wrapped up in himself and his blessings that maybe he fails to notice the need right there at his own gate. Or perhaps he notices it because we do find out later in the story that he knows the beggar's name. Maybe he does notice it, but he's just too busy doing other good works, too busy doing important things that he can't be bothered with this small matter at his doorstep with this little man who, let's face it, is never going to be any good to anybody anyway. Let somebody else, somebody with more time, somebody less important, tend to Lazarus. More and more these days, when you ask someone how they are or how they've been doing, their response is, well, I've been busy. I've said that hundreds of times, maybe thousands. How am I? Oh, I'm busy. As if being busy is some kind of badge of honor, as if being busy is a validation of my worthiness or my importance. But you know, often when I reflect on it, if I'm honest with myself, my busyness, though it's not bad, is not my best busyness. Because I believe that our busyness sometimes just may be keeping you and me from noticing the business Jesus would have us to be about. We're just so busy doing so many good things for Jesus even. Let somebody else tend to Lazarus. And what about Lazarus? Apart from his suffering, we don't know anything about him either. Was he a faithful churchgoer before his disease beset him? Was he a good family man? Did he help the beggars that he came across in his better days? Who knows? Jesus doesn't give us a clue. Jesus simply gives us a man in need. Have you ever thought about it that so many of the stories that Jesus told, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, and others, Jesus never seems to be very much concerned about anybody's moral character. What Jesus is concerned about in those stories is acts of mercy toward those in need. And he even goes so far as to say elsewhere in Scripture that when we offer those acts of 
love and grace and mercy, big ones or small ones, we are offering them directly to him. Yep, we live with many gates, those certainly that are physical and seen, but also those that are intangible and invisible, those gates that are spiritual and therefore may be a little easier to ignore. To one degree or another, I think, we have all erected gates of protection from the world, gates around our eyes and our minds and our hearts. We can only take so much need, so much tragedy, so many cries for help before we start to shut, shut down. But oh, my brothers and sisters, if this story says anything, surely it says that our lives in God's economy are marked by what we do with and at our gates. And it says that time is running out for us too. Tick, tick. The rich man's real problem, I think, was that he forgot to remember who he was, who he really belonged to, who his brothers and sisters are, what his purpose for being really was, and what his blessings were really for. Which leads me also to say that this story is not a diatribe against wealth. All that we have materially is a gift from God. And I think it would be an insult to the giver for us not to enjoy those gifts. God is pleased, I really believe, when we give thanks for and savor the things of this life with which he has blessed us. But this is what I want to say to us this morning, to me as much as to you. Enjoying is not the only responsibility that comes with having. Enjoying is not the only responsibility that comes with having. The other responsibility is giving. The other responsibility is opening our eyes and our hearts and our hands to those at our gate who might be in need of what we have in abundance. There are people on the other side of our gates, people right on your doorstep and on mine, that Jesus is calling us through this story to be in relationship with, spiritually, financially, physically. Perhaps it's a lonely neighbor or an elderly shut-in who is dying for a little company. Maybe, like the clip we saw, it's a workplace that needs to be infiltrated, your workplace with Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a child or a young adult who could use some money to obtain an education. Maybe it's a neighbor who needs a regular ride to medical treatments or therapy. Maybe it's a child in a school right in your neighborhood who needs adult attention that can't be given at home. Maybe it's a stranger who needs a bed for just one night. Maybe it's a recent flood victim who is crying out for a shepherd and a friend. Maybe it's someone to host a family tonight for the IHN. Maybe it's a social outcast here in Austin who desperately needs a welcome into this very church family. Maybe it's somebody who just needs to be significant to somebody. 
I was in Virginia at my grandson's graduation the day the Blanco raged through Wimberley. But when I got home just a few days later, I drove into town saddened by all that the river had taken from the landscape and from so many there, including people that I knew well, people that I loved, children that I work with in a public school. And on both ends of the town of Wimberley, there were families that day, children and adults, armed with these big poster board signs that advertised that they would do your laundry free if you had been affected by the flood. And so when I saw that at both places, north and south of town, I slowed down and I waved to the people, waved my thank you to the people who were doing that. And I watched them with hoses, hosing off mud and debris and dirt so that they could get those clothes ready to take them into the washing machine. And it was a small gesture. It was just a tiny little thing, except in God's economy. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, Jesus says, Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and be with you. And just think of all the forms that Jesus takes when we open the door and invite him in. But you know, he could just as well have said gate, couldn't he? Listen, I am standing at the gate knocking. In the end, our biggest mistake, like the rich man, may not be so much what we did or didn't do in this life. Our biggest mistake may well be what we allowed ourselves to believe, namely, that we're doing okay just the way we are, and that everything is right with God. Because frankly, we are not and it is not. And I want you to know that I'm not talking about works righteousness here. I am not talking about our salvation because that debt has been paid once and for all by the love and self-sacrifice of our merciful God in Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about is not earning anything. I am talking about gratitude. Gratitude for that gift that is already ours. Gratitude that opens our eyes and drives us to our knees in confession that we are not all that we are called to be. I am talking about that gratitude that lifts us up from our knees and compels us to reach out to whoever needs it with the love of Jesus that has been lavished on us. Now, some of you here in this room may work for Capital One, and if so, I'm about to offend you, probably. But I want to say that in our over-commercialized and consumer-driven society, Capital One has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars these past several years, maybe even more than that. I'm not very savvy on how much advertising costs trying to convince us, you and me, that the burning question of our lives is, what's in your wallet? Now that, friends, is good advertising, because you knew the answer, but it's bad theology. <laughs> and I think if Jesus Christ were in this room today, which brothers and sisters he is, by the way, 
And if he were telling us, not the Pharisees, but us, this story today, which, of course, he is, I think he would have another burning question for us. And it would simply be this. Who's at your gate? When you leave this room, who's going to be at your gate?